Today on Physically Spiritual, I conclude the series on the macronutrients of the soul by exploring beauty and how our defenselessness against beauty opens the door for beauty to save the world. Welcome to Physically Spiritual. I've been amazed by how much growing physically healthier has changed my spiritual life. I'm captivated by discovering the truth about my body and how it reveals God. Physically Spiritual is my attempt to harmonize and share what I've discovered. I'm your host, Andrew Reinhardt. In his famous 1970 Nobel lecture, Solzhenitsyn, who I don't didn't receive the prize in person because of his fear of not being able to get back in the Soviet Union, makes this uh, comment. He quotes Dostoevsky, who in his book, The Idiot, uh, the main character, the, the one he's named after, The Idiot, says, beauty will save the world. He says this, Dostoevsky once let drop an enigmatic, enigmatic remark. Beauty will save the world. What is this? For a long time, it seemed to me simply a phrase. How could this be possible? When the bloodthirsty process of history, when in the bloodthirsty process of history did beauty ever save anyone and from what? Granted, it ennobled, it elevated, but what did it ever save? There is, however, a particular feature in the very essence of beauty a characteristic trait of art itself. The persuasiveness of a true work of art is completely irrefutable. It prevails even over a resisting heart. Now note, he, he's sharing this in the context of his life, right? He, he received this Nobel Prize, it says, for the ethical force with, with which he has pursued the indispensable traditions of Russian literature. Right. And this happening in the midst of the Soviet Union, in the midst of this materialistic culture, of which was at times trying to blot out religion and the effect of religion on, on the culture. And, and with this, he's making this comment right, that, that there's something irrefutable about beauty. There's a power in beauty that, that like a, an argument or a, 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 an article or some persuasive um, piece of literature might not be able to capture. But in beauty, there's something completely irrefutable. He says it prevails even over a resisting heart. So as we finish this series on the macronutrients of the soul, unity, truth, goodness, and beauty, these transcendentals, these great characteristics by which the creation reflects its creator, these things that we need to take into ourselves to behold that feed our soul, that feed our whole person, that are reflected in the good physical things we need, but then also reflect our, our deepest spiritual needs. They complete us. They bring us to a point of integrity. They heal us. We end with this idea of beauty. Beauty has a, kind of, a, there's an emerging understanding in science with the power of beauty, the beauty of other people, the beauty of nature, and the beauty of art. So here's some things that have come to the surface. Uh, experiencing beauty has been shown to reduce stress and, and improve mood. Aesthetic experiences such as viewing art or, the, or natural scenery have been found to reduce stress levels and promote positive emotions. There was a study by, by uh, Chandra and Levitin. This was uh, their neurochemistry of music from Trends in Cognitive Science in 2013, found that listening to music can significantly reduce levels of the stress hormone cortisol. We all know this, that's, that music changes our mood, that experiencing the beauty of it causes these emotional movements in us, right? But scientists are getting on board with this. Second, uh, music or beauty 
can enhance cognitive function. Visual aesthetics can improve cognitive function, attention, and concentration. So a study conducted by Berman, Jonidas, and Kaplan, which was published in Psychological Science in 2008, demonstrated that exposure to nature scenes enhanced attentional performance and cognitive functioning. Experiencing beauty can also improve physical health. The experience of beauty, be it through nature or artwork, has been associated with positive physical health outcomes. Research has revealed that exposure to natural environments can reduce blood pressure, heart rate, and the production of stress-related hormones. And I'll throw a couple studies in the show notes behind this. And then beauty can also improve our immune system. So experiencing beauty can positively impact the immune system. Research conducted by, uh, I'm going to bunch butcher the name, so I apologize. Matilla, Hukinen, and Luomala found that viewing images of nature led to an increase in natural killer cells. So these are cells that the body tasks with identifying cancer and killing it before it, it can grow and become malignant and spread around the body. Right. So there's this improved immune function just from looking at pictures of nature, not just being in it. Right. So they're they're um they're sort of reducing the possibility that it's other benefits like the the fresh air or having the sunlight on your skin or all these other effects that being out in nature could have on the body. Reducing it to just looking at it, the, the visual uh, perception of the beauty of the natural world has this effect on the human body. So, so science is starting to understand more deeply a lot of what's just in, in the, the natural wisdom of the human person, some of what's in common sense, and even more than that, opening up probably new pathways of, of potential treatments or things that can go along with other treatments for the improvement of life. But oftentimes it's said in our society that beauty is in the eye of the beholder, right? Meaning that beauty is really just a subjective thing. What you experience as beautiful is different than what I experience as beautiful. And certainly there's probably some truth in that, that, you know, the, the kind of natural scenes that I like to see and be a part of are, might be different than your preferences. Like I might prefer to walk in the woods and you might prefer to sit on the beach. I might prefer to look at a scene of a painting of, of a pathway in a forest, and you might like that painting of the sunset. Uh, you might find some people beautiful that I don't find as beautiful. Like there might be an augmentation, a more or less, but is, is beauty just subjective? I would argue that I don't think it is, and there's a good philosophy, theology, and, and thought from the history of, of our tradition as Catholics that would, um, that would propose to us that although there may be subjective elements to beauty, there is something objective about it. St. Thomas Aquinas wrote a lot about beauty. You know, when, when, he, when he talks about the other transcendentals in De Veritate, he doesn't comment extensively on beauty, but where he does in, is in his commentaries on Boethius. But his, his thoughts on it can really be summarized in a kernel in his comments in the Summa Theologiae in the first part, um, uh, question 39, article 8. He says that beauty includes three conditions, integrity or perfection, since those things which are impaired are by the very fact ugly. The second, due proportion or harmony. And lastly, brightness or clarity. Whence things are called beautiful, which have a bright color. So he's proposing these three qualities to beauty. Integrity, proportion, and clarity. Integrity, proportion, and clarity. First, integrity. He says, integrity refers to the wholeness or completeness of a thing. So the health, the completion, the holiness of a thing. The, the overall that it, that it is what it is, that it's done. 
the proportion of a thing deals with its harmonious arrangement and balance. Now, it's interesting that a, a book called Deep Nutrition by Kate Shanahan takes a look at the effect of nutrition early in life on somebody's physical appearance. And what she proposes in that book is that the nutrition of the mother while the baby is in the womb and early in life ends up affecting the proportionality of the person's face, right? whether or not you know maybe your eyes match or your features are, are proportional from one side of your body to the other. And the third element here is clarity. This relates to the object's intelligibility. He proposes here a, a physical side of bright color, but it's also the understandability of it, the ability of our, our intellect to extract the, the species of the thing, right? The thing giving its form to us by it being clear. There's some of this just in our, our natural wisdom, right? When people are wanting to, so quote unquote, improve their physical appearance, they're often looking to improve those specific characteristics of themselves, which are, are specific to their sex or gender, right? So if somebody goes and gets plastic surgery, like a woman is, is likely to, to emphasize those features of herself, which are specific to femininity. And similarly, if a, if a man receives plastic surgery, he's likely to get implants or whatever, get changes in order to emphasize the specific distinctive masculine characteristics. Why is this? Well, this, this obviousness of the whatness of the thing, the masculinity of the thing or the femininity of the thing provides this kind of clarity, this distinctiveness, this giving itself to the other, becoming more obvious, the brightness of its intelligibility. So we have these three different aspects, integrity, proportion, and clarity. So now where do we find these things? I would propose we find these things in, in the places where God has given us and then our ability to reproduce the truth of the things that God has created in our works of art. So three specific areas, creation, the specific part of creation, that's us, that's humanity, so people, and then artwork. So first, the beauty of creation. In the book of Wisdom, Chapter 13, verse 5 says, For the greatness and the beauty of created things, their original author by analogy is seen. For from the greatness and the beauty of created things, their original author by analogy is seen. There's this way that what God has created for us uh, proclaims, preaches, demonstrates, shows us, points to the God who created it. There's this way that, that the natural world is self-organizing. Right? If you plant a tree, you don't have to give it instructions on how to grow. And, and the way that it ends up manifesting, growing, and laying itself out is pleasing to the eye in and of itself. Right? We don't have to impose our will or our design on nature in order for it to be appealing to us. The opposite is true of our synthetic environments, like inside of our homes. A beautiful home has some kind of a, a human intention placed on it, a design, um, if everything's just a mess, right? Everything's just all, sort of all over the place. Things aren't matching. There's no, there's no uh, philosophy behind the way things are laid out and and shown, right? The inside of the home wouldn't be considered beautiful. It wouldn't be attractive in the same way. So there's this way that that the created world, nature, is self-organizing, and by that, it's demonstrating the design of the creator, the logos, the integrity, the reason of God. And then we create in our synthetic environments a, a thing where we have to, to give it the logos. We have to give the logos to our homes, and that's by our, our interior design of the space. 
But the natural world itself proclaims God apart from our ingenuity, our putting our force, our intellect into it. This is what the Catechism says in paragraph 341. It says, The beauty of the universe, the order and harmony of the created world results from the diversity of beings and from the relationships which exist among them. Man discovers them progressively as the laws of nature. They call forth the admiration of scholars. The beauty of creation reflects the infinite beauty of the creator and ought to respire the respect and submission of man's intellect and will. That last phrase is really interesting. The beauty of creation ought to inspire the respect and submission of man's intellect and will. Creation demands the submission of our intellect and will. You know, a lot of the problems in our modern society come down to the exact opposite. Right? We don't submit ourselves to, to the design of the created order, to the beauty of creation. We impose our thoughts and our desires on the created order to make of it what we want. Right? There's this way that we violently go out to the created world and manipulate it in order to extend our power and create our own safety and security. But the opposite is what the beauty of the created world invites us to. We're being inspired to respect and submit our intellect and will to it. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't work in nature. This doesn't mean that we stop farming and stop creating and stop designing. We're, we're invited into a relationship of stewardship with the created order. You know, and, and a lot of scholars point to scriptures and, and philosophically and say, God sort of left creation incomplete. It's destined toward something. It's destined toward the kingdom of God. It's destined toward the new heaven and a new earth. And in this phase in between, we're called as human people to work toward the completion, the perfection of the created order in God's providence and in God's design. So by bringing ourselves in harmony with God's will, by discovering God's design, by approaching the created order with humility and vulnerability, we then become co-creators with God in perfecting the world. So there's this way that Adam and Eve were called to make the garden more than what God left it to them as. I think this is the great image for this is the way that, um, that some farmers handle their orchards. If you just let an apple tree grow wild, it grows tall and big, and, and a lot of the energy and nutrients from the tree go into the production of the branches and the leaves. But if you look at the way a farmer handles his orchard, right? They, they trim the tree in a certain way. They limit its size in a certain way. They place it in a certain way in order that the tree creates more apples and bigger apples and more nutritious apples, right? The, the farmer, the good tender of the orchard, can make the apple tree more perfectly an apple tree. And in a way, what, what that farmer is doing to the apple tree is what we could do with the whole created world by being vulnerable to it, by discovering God's design, by bringing ourselves in line with God's providence, and by working in the natural world to bring it closer to its perfection. All right, the second place we discover beauty reflected in God is in other people. This is uh, from the Catechism, verse 40, 41. It says, All creatures bear a certain resemblance to God, most especially man, created in the image and likeness of God. The manifold perfections of creatures, their truth, their goodness, their beauty, all reflect the infinite perfection of God. Consequently, we can name God by taking his creatures, perfections as our starting point. For from the greatness and beauty of created things comes the corresponding perception of their creator. 
the scriptural story invites us into a, a challenging fact that human people, man and woman, are at the end of creation. They're at the end of this beautiful liturgical procession of God creating the world. And, and with that, we have to face the fact that we're the most beautiful physical thing that God made. Now, in our modern society, we certainly emphasize a lot about beauty. We focus on beauty, on physical appearance, and we certainly do place ourselves at the top. We dominate and master the natural world around us. But this understanding of ourselves as beautiful, I think, is an invitation into spending more time contemplating God's work in us and less focus on our ability to manipulate our physical appearance. This is what First uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 3 and 4 says. Peter says, your adornment should not be an external one, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or dressing in fine clothes, but rather the hidden character of the heart, expressed in the imperishable beauty of a gentle and calm disposition, which is precious in the sight of God. Right, That gentle and calm disposition, which comes at base from that relationship with God, living in harmony with God's design, a, a basic posture of trust towards God, of being in, uh, in relationship and in, uh, in submission to God's providence and a certain surrender to the, what God brings into your life. Right? It's not in this external adornment. When early commentators were re- reflecting on the idea that we're made in God's image and likeness, at times they used the expression that because of sin, we never lose God's image, but as a result of sin, we lose God's likeness. Meaning that, that, that although the, the original intention of God can't be blotted out, our nature can't be destroyed except by destroying us completely, by killing ourselves. But by sin, there's this progressive way at which the ability of the image of God to be reflected outside of us is continuously dimmed. I think a helpful way to understand this might actually be looking at uh, our sacramental theology as a church. When talking about the effects of the sacraments, uh, St. Thomas or St. Augustine, I apologize, made a distinction between the different effects of the sacraments. That the, the, the sacrament accomplishes what it's meant to accomplish. Meaning, if, if you are baptized with the right form and matter, with the right stuff, the right prayer, and with the right intention by the right person, that sacrament is valid. You are baptized, you receive the Holy Spirit, you become a member of the church, and that doesn't change. But there's also another effect of the sacrament. You might call this like the way that it changes you subjectively. Because there's a lot of people that have been baptized that are walking around, um, you know, not particularly acting anything like God. <laughs> so they, they've received the Holy Spirit, but are they acting like the Holy Spirit? Right? And this is the, the subjective effect of the, the sacrament, what he called the ex opere operantis. And so this is the, the ability of that, of us allowing that sacrament to transform our day-to-day life. I know that every time the priest prays the right prayers over the bread and wine at the altar during Mass, that bread and wine become the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. But how much does every time I receive that host make me more like Jesus? Right? That's the difference between the ex opere operato and the ex opere operantis, which are the Latin phrases that Augustine uses. So similarly... By analogy, we could understand that the, the, the image of God, that original intention of God, the way that we're designed to be a sacrament of God in the created order, 
cannot be undone by our will. But the ability of that to actually be effective in the world around us, that people by seeing us will see God, that by our interaction with the world, we continue God's will, we continue God's providence, that in the, the various manifold ways that we're called to be like God in the world, right? that effect can be dimmed. So the image of God cannot be blotted out, but our likeness to God is diminished by our sin and our falling away from God's plan. Right? So we ourselves, we ourselves are the most beautiful thing we can ever show to another person. And we're beautiful to the extent at which we reflect God in our person. Right? And this is this reciprocity between, between holy solitude and holy relationships, between being in communion with God, receiving from him, discovering him as the deepest core of ourselves and living in that, that space of communion with him, and then experiencing him in one another. And, and by having discovered ourselves, we share ourselves, and then we receive God as the other person. Right? This is the, the beauty of human relationship, the beauty that we're called to live in. Right? The final place we discover beauty is in artwork. Catechism paragraph 1162 says, The beauty of the images moves me to contemplation as a meadow delights the eyes and subtly infuses the soul with the glory of God. And I'll put the citation of this in the show notes. The catechism goes on and says, Similarly, the contemplation of sacred icons united with meditation on the word of God and the singing of liturgical hymns enters into the harmony of the signs of celebration so that the mystery celebrated is imprinted in the heart's memory and is then expressed in the new life of the faithful. This is powerful. The mystery celebrated is imprinted in the heart's memory and is then expressed in the new life of the faithful. There's this reality of humanity that, that we, as a composition, in our deepest person of head and heart, of, of, um, of intellect and will, of knowing and desiring, right? that, that we come to know the faith intellectually, but our capacity to live the faith comes down to the amount that our heart is transformed, that journey from the head to the heart. So there's this way, this is in the section of the Catechism talking about the liturgy here, our celebration of the sacraments. So in this, the images, the beauty of a church, the icons, and the liturgical hymns, the music, all these go on to make it so that the liturgical celebration is as imprints on the memory of the heart. Right? There's this, this echo of our desires, of our loves, of our affections that, that go forth from that liturgy that then are expressed in our new life, this new faithful life, is the day-to-day life of living like God. So the catechism is in inviting us into a mystery that there's, there's a way at which the beauty of our churches, the artwork that's there, the music that's there, the beauty of our liturgical celebrations are an enfleshment, an incarnation of the words that are proclaimed in the readings and the word that's received in the Eucharist. And it's in this holistic human experience of the liturgy, the community gathered, the reception of the word, the reception of the Eucharist, reflected in the beauty of the celebration and expressed in the beauty of the church, that we as a whole person are imprinted, are transformed, are changed, to then go out and live that liturgy in the world, 
to go out and be that icon of God in the world for others to experience. Right? So there's, there's this reciprocal relationship between uh, right worship and our capacity to evangelize, our ability to be effective in the gospel calling. And all of this, the base of it is from our human vulnerability to the beauty of artwork. Our vulnerability to the beauty of artwork. There's, there's something about um, seeing a piece of fine art, a beautiful painting, uh, a beautiful piece of music, a piece of classical music, exposing ourselves to that, to seeing a sculpture. Right There's a way at which um, everyone appreciates those things, but to varying degrees, we're imprinted by it or affected by it. You know, a, a lot of contemporary art and contemporary music uh, has this surface quality to it. Where it is beautiful, it is good, it is attractive, but there's this immediate appeal to our sensual nature, to our affections. Uh, and, and so we're, we're sort of drawn into, we're drawn into the experience of the true, the good, and the beautiful by first being affected on a sensual level. And, 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 and it takes a move to then be, um, to then go to that deeper place. So, so you can be drawn in, feel yourself attracted to, for example, um, popular music, even if you don't understand what the artist is saying, because it just affects you, it moves you. A lot of classical art is the exact opposite. You're confronted with the good, the true, and the beautiful. You're confronted with the form. And while there is an experience of the beautiful, you're really drawn in by then engaging with that reality, engaging with the true, the good, and the beautiful in it, in an intellectual way, and then experiencing a rational appetite toward it. So, so there's an order of operations difference here. In, in a lot of contemporary art, in pop music, for example, or in modern art, there's uh, an appeal to the passions, which draws the person in and gives the possibility to then understand the, the logos, the thought, the idea behind it, which could then move you toward um, on an intellectual way. And there's a, a way at which classical art confronts us more abruptly with the true, the good, the beautiful, confronts us more abruptly with the logos in a way that, that if we don't engage with it on an intellectual plane, right, meaning we need to engage our rational appetite and not just our passions, right, we can move on from it and not be deeply affected by it. And just do this experiment for yourself. Turn your radio on to your local pop station and listen to a couple, show, a couple of the songs and notice how it moves you. And then flip over to a classical music station and notice how it moves you. What you'll find is that pop music draws you in and keeps you there, even if you're not paying attention, right? It moves you just on a passionate level. That classical music, you might experience yourself starting to get bored with it, starting yourself maybe having a difficult time paying attention to it. Uh, but then it could invite you into something deeper, right? How is it really affecting you? How is your body moving and changing as a result of it? Um, what's the deeper impact? Then even more than that, you could understand the life of the composer, the historical circumstance that goes into it, the philosophical context in which it was written, and then enter more and more deeply into the piece. Right? I'm not proposing here like classical music and art good, contemporary music and art bad. What I'm just saying is that 
that there's a way at which they interact with us as a human person on a different level. And ultimately, the, the value of good art is the, the amount to which it gives us the true, the good, and the beautiful, the amount to which it reveals God to us. That's our ultimate end, our ultimate purpose, uh, what we're, we're really made for as human, these macronutrients of the soul that I'm talking about. So when we're, when we're uh, contemplating art, when we're contemplating the beauty of a, a photograph, listening to a beautiful song, right? where is that taking us? What's the end of it? What's the telos of it, the classical term? Where is it moving us? And, and there's this way at which um, we can really affect ourselves by the experience of the beautiful, by starting to expose ourselves. And I say expose on purpose because we're vulnerable to it. We don't have def- defenses completely against it. To the, the beauty of artwork from different traditions, from different societies, the beauty of music, the beauty of sculpture, the beauty of photography, even the beauty of smells, of scents, can have a powerful effect on our mind and heart. All right, so these three different ways through God's creation, and then specific in that, the height of creation of, of people, and then our ability to reflect and express creation in artwork, right? All of this are ways at which we can expose ourselves to beauty. Right, I want to conclude by, uh, by continuing on with uh, something that Solzhenitsyn also said in his speech. He goes on and says later on in the speech, he says, So perhaps the old trinity of truth, goodness, and beauty is not simply the decorous and antiquated formula it seems to us at time, at the time of our self-confident materialistic youth. If the tops of these three trees do converge, as thinkers used to claim, and if the all too obvious and the overly straight sprouts of truth and goodness have been crushed, cut down, and not permitted to grow, then perhaps the whimsical, unpredictable, and ever surprising shoots of beauty will force their way through and soar up to that very spot, thereby fulfilling the task of all three. And then no slip of the tongue, but a prophecy would be contained in Dostoevsky's words, beauty will save the world. For it was given to him to see many things. He had astonishing flashes of insight. This whimsical, unpredictable, and surprising shoot of beauty. Whimsical, unpredictable, and surprising shoot of beauty. We have to choose to let ourselves be vulnerable to this. And I would propose just a few things you might do. Um, when, when you're looking at something, there's a distinction, and I've talked about this in previous episodes. We might think of the distinction between the way a, um, the way an eye doctor looks at your eyes versus the way that your spouse looks at your eyes. Or maybe the difference between the way that an astronomer looks at the sky for his scientific inquiry versus the way a poet or an artist might look at the sky when they're composing their artwork. Right? This distinction really between going out to the thing and understanding it, sort of taking apart, breaking it into its pieces, reducing it, uh, might uh, traditionally have called this kind of the ratio function of the intellect, 
Um, although it's a bit of an oversimplification. Then on the other hand, there is a way at which we can receive something, expose ourselves to it, be vulnerable to it, let it give itself to us, let it present itself to us, let it reveal God to us. This kind of vulnerability to the thing we're experiencing, this is the, the intellectu side of, of our reason. Once again, I, an oversimplification of these uh, deep concepts. So we need to start practicing this receiving the world because it's, it's not really a deep part of our society. We have this super high valuation of scientific knowledge and this decreasing valuation of, of, of receiving, receiving art, of being vulnerable to the natural world. So just starting with that posture, going out into the natural world and, and, and resist the, uh, the temptation to get your phone out of your pocket and, and scan the leaf from the tree on your app that identifies what the tree is, right? Resist the urge to, um, you know, to, to, uh, you know, to try to make it practical. Like, oh, I'm going out to get some exercise. No, just go out just to be there, to receive. Let nature give itself to you. Notice how your body moves and changes as it's happening. Uh, there's a, uh, it's been said that, um, that it takes hours of sitting with something before you start to notice everything that's there. So at first glance, if you just pass by it, um, we're just naturally disposed to sort of filter. Certain things will stand out to you and certain things will not. And until you sit with something long enough to be completely bored and to continue to receive it sometimes, do you not then break through that initial cursory glance to then notice the other elements of it that you didn't notice at first. So go out and sit in nature until you are unbearably bored and continue to be vulnerable to how it affects you. All right, the second thing you might do, uh, the next time you get out of the shower, stand in front of the mirror and just notice how you're View of yourself affects you. What do you think? What do you hear from your heart? What do you feel? How strong is your compulsion to cover yourself up and why? Uh, what are your unstated or stated beliefs about yourself? How do you talk to yourself? How do you describe yourself? Can you experience your own beauty? Can you see that image of God coming through in the likeness of God in you? Are you attuned to the truth of yourself? Can you see yourself with the eyes that God sees you? Right? Can you start to break through uh, the interpretive lens that our society gives us where our, our value uh, comes from our shallow uh, understanding of what true beauty is? Right? Spend that time contemplating and noticing, journaling, uh, being curious about why you react to yourself how you do. Then the next time you're with um, someone that's close to you, like, like maybe your parents or your spouse or one of your brothers or sisters or one of your close friends, just take a moment and try to receive them. But I remember this, um, I had a powerful moment once. I was, it was a few years, um, gosh, I think it was around the time I was leaving the seminary. So about 12 or 13 years ago, and I was at my parents' house, and I remember for the first time actually seeing my father, not like seeing him, but seeing him as if I'd never seen him before. 
like noticing the subtle characteristics of his face and um and his look and it's like it's like he was always there and and a little bit taken for granted in a way that that I had never really looked at him before and i remember just having this this burst of of insight of seeing him as if i'd never seen him before as if i was a stranger as if i had run into him on the street and just noticing the subtleties of his appearance of his face of um seeing him as a mystery beyond what his meaning to me was, right? Because that's what what a parent is to you as a child, right? That the parent's meaning is what they do for you, what they provide for you, what you need from them. Um, and then there's a part of of adulthood where I think we're challenged to then see our parents as a good in and of themselves, to enter into a, a more mutual relationship in which they're appreciated as a mystery beyond uh, beyond the horizons of me. Um, and 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 I think that moment really changed my ability to love him, to see him, to appreciate who he is, not just as a good for me, but in a good enough himself. So the next time you're with um, someone, your parent, your spouse, uh, a close friend, your brother, just spend a moment and try to receive. Now, I want to note here in all these exercises, what Solzhenitsyn said is true. It's whimsical, unpredictable, and ever surprising. <laughs> Right, so sometimes going out and trying to make it happen is the very thing that will ensure that it doesn't. But sometimes also if we don't dispose ourselves to it, we're never really vulnerable to let it happen. So you got to take shots on goal. You got you to take chances. This isn't just going to go out and you're going to make magic happen by your effort. Right? By, but by creating the context and the spaces by which beauty can penetrate, uh, you, I think you increase the chances. Right? So take a chance. Uh, be with that person and just let them be seen by you. Receive instead of taking. Uh, let their voice uh, change your ears and let their image change your eyes. Uh, let their smell change your nose, right? Uh, and in this way, I think we can experience more and more of the beauty of others. So thank you everyone for joining me on this series where we've gone through the macronutrients of the soul, the transcendentals, the ways that God is reflected in his creation, and I think really the deepest needs of our, our human heart, our whole human person, to experience the one, the true, the good, and the beautiful. Check out the show notes for links to the previous episodes, and, and as always, uh, I'm just really grateful for you being here. God bless everyone. Thank you so much for listening to or watching Physically Spiritual. I'm so grateful for every moment you've given to this show. Please remember to subscribe, like, follow, and share the show. And if you want to support everything we're doing at Physically Spiritual or at Awaken Catholic, you can become a patron of the show at physicallyspiritual.com. To find anything I'm up to, head over to becominggift.com. God bless everyone.